everyone, welcome to another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast, where I speak with people who are keeping the Singaporean food heritage alive in their own way. My guest today on the show would be no stranger to you if you follow Singapore Noodles on Instagram. Half a year ago, I hosted an anti-cookalong series on Instagram Live, where I invited Zaitun and Tahira of Spicy Kitchen to teach me how to cook wajik. They're both such inspirations to me that I invited them on the show to share about the Indian Muslim community and how Spicy Kitchen is empowering Singaporeans to cook and shattering boundaries one meal at a time. Hi! Hello! How are you? Good, I'm good, I'm good. But it's so nice to speak with you both again. Last time that we kind of hung out virtually was Mm -hmm. during the cook-along. So it's been a while since then. You know, before meeting both of you, I knew very little about the Indian Muslim community. And I feel that there is not much representation of this community in Singapore. Like, we don't hear much about this community, at least from my perspective of a a Chinese person growing up in Singapore. Um, So yeah, can you tell me a little bit more about your community? Like, what kind of festivals do you guys celebrate? I think Indian Muslim in Singapore... They have been there, but I think they've been mixed up with um, Indian Hindus who celebrate Deepavali because the general feeling or impression of an Indian in Singapore is they are Hindus and they celebrate Deepavali. Uh, it's just like saying that like the Chinese, they do not say that the Chinese, there are Chinese Catholics and Chinese Christians or Chinese. It's, it's, they, we assume that they're all Chinese who celebrate, who uh, who embrace Taoism or the you know the ancestral worship. So I think they and then there's the the impression is that Malays are Muslim. Yeah, so that is a misconception which we have. I sort of I have grown up with also. Like I have still have friends who ask me, oh you don't celebrate Deepavali? Oh why is that so? And I wear I wear a scarf and say, oh you're a Malay? Oh, I'm an Indian. So this. It will take some time for people to uh, understand this difference. So when you say Indian, it's a race. Muslim is, uh, is refers to the person who practices Islam. So that's Indian Muslim. So like for the Hindus, uh, they, they, they celebrate Hin- uh, Deepavali. They, they embrace Bali and Mongol and the Saiputam and all those festive, religious festivals. Precisely because Islam is based on the concept of, of one God, Muslims, regardless of their race, only celebrate like Hari Raya, uh, Eid, which we say in Arabic. Also follow their own Islamic calendar, which has other like religious festivals, like the Prophet's birthday, um, the New Year. So like my birthday, for an example, in the English calendar is 7 June, but then my mom knows like the Islamic calendar version of that. So she was happy birthday on the Islamic calendar one to me. So, I mean, all these festivals that we celebrate as Indian Muslims are linked to the religion. So I guess a common understanding of it would be just to know that Islam is, or Muslims are people who practice Islam and they can be of any race. So would you say that Dipavali is a religious festival rather than a cultural festival? Because for example, when we have, say, Chinese New Year, it's celebrated across the board, whatever religion um, you associate with. So would you say that Deepavali is um, kind of different from that? It's about a Nagasura, if I'm, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. He was defeated and to celebrate the light, light, they celebrate Deepavali. So there is a root of it that is linked to like Ramayana and the, the Hindu epics, which yeah. Muslims don't believe in. 
but at the same time, I, I mean, I, I would write this as I say this as a caveat, right? Like as a, as a young person living in Singapore and all that, like uh, there are a lot of people who wish me deeply, <laughs> And when I was growing up, my mom was like, no. <laughs> Only Muslims celebrate Hari Raya. We don't celebrate Deepavali. But then as I grew older, I was like, you know, I think I don't celebrate it in my family, but I like my partner is, is Hindu. So, I, you know, I would go to his house or like I, I know other people and we'll go to their place. So it's more like I could partake in the celebrations, even if I wasn't born into a family that celebrated. Same for Christmas, right? Like it, it has become something so quotation marks universal, even though the root of it is it's religious hmm. so i think you know growing up in singapore has kind of like made us a little bit more malleable in some sense due to how we are open to these different festivals but originally we we only, we only celebrate like we mentioned so what about indian muslim food is the key difference no pork i think that when we started this experience we wanted to be clear that like you know it's not that the food we cook is is so exclusive to our to like our community. Of course, Indians also cook it, like Hindus also cook it. But the biggest difference, like you mentioned, is that yeah, we, we definitely don't use pork. And the second thing is that traditionally we use so much meat because a lot of our religious festivals revolve around like the sacrifice of meat or donating meat to the poor. And and traditionally also like in in India or even in in Middle East, there used to be a lot of meat that was reared and used by in agriculture. So it was a part of the festival. So like biryani would have meat in it and like a dalcha. It's I think you would know dalcha is like a kind of vegetable curry. But then like the joke is that Indian Muslims would put like mutton bone inside. Whereas the vegetarian versions that Hindus cook and also have a lot in temples is the non-meat yeah. version, right? The so sambar. it has no, yeah, no mutton bone and it's called sambar. Yeah. Mm. So these are some of the, the differences. And I guess the third difference would be like when we cook these foods, right? So linked to the first question, we, we usually cook these foods around our religious religious festivals like Ramadan and breakfast and etc. I know that you guys cook this dish called Misiam Briyani, right? And I yeah. found that super fascinating because I had never heard of this dish before you guys told me about it. Um, yeah. And I was just wondering if this was a Southeast Asian dish because I can't imagine seeing this dish in India. When we started this experience, we, we kind of agreed that it must have been innovated yeah. by my grandmother or somebody, some of my ancestors who came to Singapore from India because in India, they don't use vermicelli noodles, right? And mee siam, siam refers to where it comes from in Thailand or Southeast Asia in general. And using vermicelli noodles to make biryani was definitely something they innovated with pandan and lemongrass and all the other Southeast Asian things we now use to make mee siam biryani. So we don't know the exact like person who did it, but we know that my father's mother, Parama, who passed away, her mother, supposedly invented misiam biryani and um pal misiam when she was cooking to a vendor in some canteen or something. She was a vendor in the canteen. So on Saturdays and Saturdays, she would just, she tried innovating with coconut milk and sort of it, it became a hit. Yeah. So, so yeah. Then, then it passed on to yeah. her daughters yeah. and then eventually my mom learned it when she became, when she married into my father's family. Yeah. Do you prefer mm-hmm. that to the typical biryani made with uh, basmati rice? I'm biased, like, I would say. Yeah, I really, I really, really, I, for me, it's a very familiar feeling and I, I feel a lot of comfort and I just know that 
this is how I've always eaten it. We like how the noodles soak up the curry, mm. which is something that rice doesn't really do. So yeah, for that reason, yeah. I, I, I like it a lot. So the Misiam Briyani, the curry is like sort of like, part of it is soaked with curry. There's mm. another part which is like, uh, yeah, not soaked at all. So you eat it, eat it together. Sometimes you eat it with dalcha. I'm so excited to try that. I, I know that you sent me the recipe, but I have not like gotten to it. But I'll definitely do. But I'm very curious to hear, like, were you always cooking with your mom since young? I wasn't always cooking with my mom. She was open to me joining her and I, I could learn at any point. But it was only when I started living away from home that I was a bit more uh, eager to replicate what I ate at home. At some point, I realized, wow, I really don't know a lot, so I better learn. <laughs> and then I started picking it up. But it was quite late in my life, in my mid-20s, that I started cooking with more awareness of what goes into the food to make it what it is. I lived abroad in, in several parts of my life, and I would make do with whatever my mom WhatsApp me or whatever I found online. And then I would just make something, and then all my friends would be like, wow, it's damn good. But I knew deep inside my heart that it was shit. So <laughs> when I came back to Singapore eventually, I just started to pay closer attention to how she made what I was used to growing up taste exactly like that. And then I realized where I missed out or like what ingredients I missed out. And obviously it culminated a lot more when we started our sessions because we did it like every single weekend we would be cooking. Oh, and also I started to like, last time I was so lazy I mean like when I was a kid like every kid my age I suppose like during Hari Raya they would cook through the night and all the kids would just sleep right but this time around I think two or three years ago I went to my aunt's house to stay with my mom and my god they cooked from 9 p.m to 2 a.m it was crazy but I saw the work that went into it and I was like wow okay I really I need to know that and that it was from there like, I started to pay more attention that's lovely. You know, right before this call with you guys, I was actually making chicken rendang. And, and it made me feel very emotional. Like, I had never felt so emotional about rendang before. Um, but when I tasted it and when Wax, my husband, tasted it, he, he was like, oh my god, it's damn show. And he just kept saying, it tastes like the nasi padang stall. And then he went back like three times to, to get more food. And... Um, on one hand, it was like, oh, you know, I feel very proud to be Singaporean or Southeast Asian, you know, to have grown up with these dishes. But at the same time, it made me a bit sad because does it take moving abroad to really have this newfound understanding and appreciation for Singaporean food? Because I've done this podcast for a while now and I've spoken to a few people who have lived abroad. And, you know, the thread is always the same whenever I ask them, how did your interest in local food start? It's always, you know, I moved abroad and there's no equivalent for food from home. And that's how they start cooking. But for the most part, people who live in Singapore, a lot of them may never move abroad in their lifetimes. So how can we truly cultivate that in them? You know, this understanding that this thing that we have is so precious and it should be normalized and it should be celebrated. Maybe when the younger people get married, they set up their home and they move on their own and they want to replicate what they have eaten and pass it on to their children. They've had some guests who are like young moms or like newly married and then they want to learn how to cook for their family, things that maybe they, they cook at home or, or are familiar to them. And as someone now who lives on my own, I feel like it's about creating routines. Like, 
it's it's so easy, like you said, to just go down to hawker center and eat it, right? It's it's just so accessible. But you know, when when you are in your parents' home and like let's just take Hari Raya for an example, right? I wake up in the morning, I shower, and then I, I I know there will be idiot firm and Dalcha for me. But if I was going to be in my own home and I wake up at 8 a.m., I can't be like, I mean, you want to create that routine where now you are able to, to make that idiot firm and Dalcha for you to eat before you go out and visit your family. You could be dependent on your parents, but what happens after they pass away, right? You don't want that to come before you start um, learning how to create these routines for yourself. If you, if you don't have these routines, I, I realized through even myself, right, then these festivals or these special occasions have less of a, a beautiful significance because the truth is that food surrounds a lot of how we celebrate our festivals and we should know how to, to recreate these memories, right? So we, we need to just put in the effort to, to recreate that, whether it's putting up the Christmas tree or making the food or giving with or calling your parents like it's all the same package and i can i can truly empathize this when we don't appreciate things when the parents are there and when they are passed when they passed away we cannot get it like my mom makes extremely good pickles she used to make so good pickles that she actually sells to people and uh, i've heard so many of my aunties all telling me that but i've never learned it and she doesn't put preservatives that's one thing about that pickles that she made so you have to like eat it within like a two months or three months because she cooks it in oil so it can last for three, four months. But I think the pickles they sell in the bottle it has preservatives inside. Mm. So but I've never learned it. I think that's a common thread through the stories of people who follow Singapore noodles. Because um, sometimes they send me messages on what Singapore noodles means to them. And, and I think something that they said was, oh, you know, I've always grown up with my family and then my grandmother just passed away, but we have never written recipes down. And so it just dies with them. And so they don't have a written record anywhere. And I remember that when, when I was younger, my mom used to have a recipe book, but her recipe book, I mean, that she wrote herself was like just full of annotations. Like it wasn't like, oh, three tablespoons of light soy sauce. <laughs> it was like abstract drawings and just like a grocery list instead of a recipe. Um, so I was just wondering if you guys actually keep recipes. Like written recipes. By Dickinson and everything has been my effort to get her to document it because she's so um, resistant to exact measurements. But I've told her that like it's it's very hard for me or anyone who comes to try and replicate this if we cannot give them even an idea of what it is that needs to go into the dish. So she's been really trying, um, and she's helped me lah with Google Docs and stuff like that. But it will take a bit more because. I think the truth is, you can confirm this, is that they, they've made so much of it with feeling that when they exact size, like when they try and get it so specific, they're afraid that it won't be the, the right amount. She doesn't know how to write, to articulate that, that kind of, of knowledge, that mum science, lah, that's what I call it. Mum science, yeah. You know, like when I watch my grandmother-in-law cook, it is a lot of that mom science and a little bit of superstition as well. Like, <laughs> she ferments her own rice wine, uh, you know, like the red wine leaves that people marinate with the chicken, right? Confinement food. Um, and like, there's a lot of superstition, like, oh, you cannot look at it. You oh like, leave it alone. I totally understand. <laughs> <laughs> my mom would say the same thing too. <laughs> 
the shade. <laughs> she would like pray over the thing. So like, you know, how am I going to write this in a recipe? But it's just how she does it. Lah. Like she really believes in the, 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 the spirit of, of the act of cooking. Like, I mean, I'm not mocking her, but it's very funny. Like when she's <laughs> pouring the thing, she will say like bismillah, you know, like hoping that this will cause it to rise or like, she, she really trusts the, 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 the spirit. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, but I think that, Okay, if you're religious or non-religious, whether or not you want to continue that, it's up to you, right? You can follow the signs of it in, in terms of measurements, but if you want to add these religious aspects to it, then go ahead lah. Or don't look at the food. Also, she will literally say, if I say it's nice, she'll say, don't say yet! <laughs> and she'll get really angry. Because <laughs> in, in Arabic, it's called nazar. It's serious thing. Like some people even put like black mole on their child. Black, oh wow. Black mark because they don't want the, 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 the evil eye to, to whatever ruin their faces. Like when you look at the child, your eyes get caught onto the mole. Evil eye exists. Some it, it exists, right? Evil eye like you look Mom's at it. On signs, I don't know. Yeah, it exists. <laughs> when I got my period for the first time, there were so many foods that I ate, which I still believe is superstitious, but she claims otherwise. Like I had to eat raw egg, drink sesame oil out of the eggshell eat um, the flour that is used to make vadeh, oh my goodness. I guess as young people who have access to so much resources, some of us would be skeptical, like, okay, you're kidding me. Like me, right? I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, really? So I may not follow these beliefs in, in, in my life. But I, I take her word for it that it may yeah. have these properties. Tahira, you know you made a very good point about creating routines, right, in your life. But the thing is, a lot of the food in our... Um, in our cuisines, they are very laborious, especially for festival foods. So, for example, um, making patang for Chinese, that is huge, you know? Like, every year, the family will get together and make dumplings. But that only happened in families that were big, you know? And then you'll have the whole labor, uh, labor division going on. But what about this modern age, where people are time-pressed, people don't have big families, do you feel that our cuisine has to evolve or our approach to it? Difficult. I, I think, I mean, in addition to your time press and, you know, all the, the ingredients you need to get, if you can agree with your, your, your husband or your partner that, you know, I really want to make this a routine for us, then both of you need to set, set aside the time to do it. Because, I mean, even making muruku last week with my mom, right? I don't know how the older people did it, but for us, it was a division of labor, like you said. So, my mom pressed, I fried, then the helper took it out, then my younger cousins put it in the bottle, tightened the thing, then put the post-it. So it, it needs to be something that is done either with just you and your partner or you need to find a way in which you can make it communal so that you can split the work and also the joy of doing it together. It, it, it takes effort, but if you really want to establish that as your routine, then you, you need to put the effort for it, I suppose. When you guys first conceived Spicy Kitchen, what was your main goal? Was it, you know, just to teach people about your community and your food? Or did you see it as a bigger movement? Like, oh, you know, we want to get more Singaporeans involved in cooking. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Not such a... Not really. I think to be very honest, we started, I started off and I told her yeah. that I think we need to preserve what we, we have been doing for so long and also share it with more people. So I, I, I started it 
or I had the idea to do it, to share what I knew I had at home with people who probably would have no access to this. And I was quite inspired by um, experiences that I saw in other countries. So I think Bori Kitchen is one from India, this guy from Mumbai. He's from the Bori community, which is a subset of uh, Muslims. They dress differently and, and, and they cook like really diff slightly different food. Lah. Um, and I was looking at him and thinking, oh, wow, he does this. And like, I could do something similar with what I do at home. I think the idea of getting Singaporeans to cook was just a, a thing that was born out of our experience. But what we did, right, it's not that we are getting Singaporeans to cook, but rather we are cooking with them. At the end of the experience, from what I've, I've observed, I think that they may have gotten more comfortable with cooking, but I'm not sure how comfortable they are doing it on their own 100%. But they may have gotten over some fears of like chopping onions, frying stuff, doing something that may seem complex um, with, with some hand-holding from my mom, definitely. The first session was quite nerve-wracking for me to, like I had to be very sure of the number of spoons I had to put in, the curry powder and all that. And here I was like, I just put... <laughs> so yeah, but now I'm okay. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good experience. And I feel lots of joy when I see that the people eat and they enjoy what they cook with their own hands. And they're like, wow, did I do this? Yeah, you did this yourself. Yeah. I think it's really great because, you know, I've cooked along with you and you are definitely a very patient person and you, you'll try your best to provide measurements. I remember when I was cooking with you, I was asking how many tablespoons and you, you were like very calm and very patient. And I think it's very different from the experiences that I had cooking with older ladies in Southeast Asia, I mean in Singapore. Um, like whenever you cook with an older auntie, they are always like, maybe it's just Chinese aunties that I cook with, they are always very like, uh, like impatient or they'll be like, just do that or like, oh, you know, whatever you want, just do it, you know. Instead of trying to seek middle ground and say, okay, you know, this person needs measurements, um, I will try to, you know, teach them, uh, like reach them where they are at. I think that is very important in teaching people how to cook. I remember there was once I posted a recipe for Hainanese pork chop. And to me, it was a very simple, uh, very simple recipe. You just bread the pork chops in uh, flour, egg, and um, biscuit crumbs, like the cream crackers, right? And then you deep fry, and then you coat it with the sauce. So someone made the recipe, and she texted me, and she was like, oh, you know, I made this recipe and for some reason the crackers were not sticking onto the pork. And I said, oh, how do you bread your pork chop? And she said, oh, I dipped it in egg, then the flour and then the, the cream <laughs> crackers. And, and for me, it was like, oh my God, like I, I thought everyone knew how to do it. You know, how can I expect someone to cook really complicated food when they have not like mastered the basics? I, I think ultimately what I do at Singapore Noodles and what you guys do at Spicy Kitchen is about being of service to people, right? Serving people in a way, um, like really wanting to teach them so that they can go home and cook. Was it difficult being so patient with your students or was it something that came naturally to you? Uh, I think when we are talking to a visitor or a guest, I think we become the different persona. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I will always tell her, yeah, talking too fast, slow down, or give instructions before you go and do this. Like, because I can imagine, um, like, how someone who maybe, like you said, has basically no experience will be like, what the hell? Your mom just did cut the onion. I'm like, how to cut? 
So I'll be like, Ma, tell them how, I usually say it in Tamil because I don't want to like embarrass her. So I'll say, teach them how to cut the onion first or, or, or like, when sometimes she, she rattles off like three steps and I'll be like, say one step first and then she will repeat it slower. And, and also because like some of the guests really have zero knowledge. So they need a lot of hand holding. And that's when we need to be extra patient. I, I don't think it takes a lot out of us, to be honest, yeah. to be that way. Because we know they came here to spend the time and the money to learn from us. So it's, it's the least we can do with that. Like you said, I, I didn't know that they would know such a simple step. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, oh, okay. Like peeling the onion and cut, slicing it. I thought it was very basic. But they actually don't know how to do it. Like, okay. Uh, yeah, it's quite humbling for me to know that oh there's someone who doesn't know how to do simple stuff. It actually I always laugh that inside my head, right? Like she will soften the the pandan by putting it at the fire and they will be like, Wow, how did you do that? You know, and they, they find it like miraculous. So it's yeah. good that we we pass on knowledge that we think is so simple and basic to people who would have never even considered it or conceived of this in the first place. It's so funny that you said that because when I when I did my first uh, Instagram cook along, uh, Instagram live cook along, it was with my friend Chingyi, and we were making lomai kai for the first time. You know the glutinous rice with the chicken in a bowl. She was very nervous because she had never cooked before. I mean, she had cooked before, but like really basic stuff. So when she heard that we were going live and she was doing this in front of a live audience, she was very nervous. So the, the day before, she was trying to gather all her ingredients and she took a photo of um, onion, uh, Charlotte and garlic. And she was like, which one is Charlotte? <laughs> when you watch TV shows like, you know, Jamie Oliver, you know, he tried to revolutionize um, the way American children ate and approach food right like you would see things like he would hold up a broccoli and ask the kids what is this and the kids don't know what that is but he'll hold up like a chicken nugget and he'll say what is this and the kids will say oh that's a nugget you know oh my god when i watched that i was shocked i was like oh my god thank god singaporeans are not like that <laughs> <laughs> but now i feel that given that so few people are actually cooking this might be the case here i was looking at the stats and only about 20% of Singaporeans now cook. Because everyone is eating out at hawker centres. You know, it's so cheap. It's so accessible. Mm-hmm. If you have a small family, why would you cook, right? And, and so I think it makes me feel very sad and very fearful for the future of Singaporean food. You know, like Mamazi said, you know, uh, it's something that you'll learn to appreciate when you grow older and you'll try to cook more when you're older. But my question is, what if people only want to cook Western food for their kids? Because it's easy, right? Like, why would you make, why would you make, um, like, biryani when you can make a steak? You just fry it in a pan and you just uh, saute some, some broccoli, you know? Personally, I think it comes from a lot of self-awareness. And if that person in question chooses to do the easier method because, you know, they don't want to go through this process of cooking what, they grew up eating, then they will quickly realize that a part of their identity or their culture is, is eroding away and they become so homogeneous with just tons of other people in the world who don't have that, that special heritage that they have. And it, it's like if you realize how intrinsic or how a part of you this this food or this, this culture is, then um, you, you will put the effort in it. Like I can draw a very interesting parallel here actually which is something my sister and I talk a lot about. 
um, it's not related to food, but it's related to culture, right? So when we were younger, my mother would force us to wear Punjabi suit and Bajikurong all the time and we would despise it. <laughs> and, and gold, oh my goodness, this was a joke. We keep insisting that we wear gold and we were like, oh my God, no, I don't want to, right? But as, I, as we grew older and we realized that we were dressing like everybody else, every next person looked like us. I mean, sure, you know, we have a different sense of style and all that, but there was a part of us that was linked to how our mother dressed us. And that's what made us unique. The, the prints she chose for us, the clothes that she bought the fabric and made specifically for our body, you know. And as I grow older now, I, I, I care so much about that. And I, I make it a big part of who I am because I know that there's no one else who is going to have that kind of, of, of culture or just makeup. So... I think clothes have become uh, an easy way. Now everybody is dressing ethnically, you know, it's, it's cool to wear a, a sari and a, and a Punjabi suit every next day, it's cool. But I think food would possibly have that pick up at a, at a point as well. And I see this on TV, right? Like and even on famous magazines, like suddenly Bon Appetit and Delicious Magazine has like kichadi and, and all kinds of, of heritage food that's showing up on it. And I think that that will spiral people to think about how the food they are eating is also a big part of their identity. And if you can only eat it at restaurants, but you can't make it, then are you really like building that, that, that makeup of yourself? So it, it takes some kind of like provocation, I think, and, and that, that kind of self-awareness, but it, it will come. I feel that there'll be a lot of older people who, who might, take up cooking and teach cooking to the younger generation, like in the community center. I mean, this is something I really visualize. This is something that I dream of. That is when I'm in the 70s. I would like to have some people coming in with me, uh, coming to me and uh, like teaching. So I suppose the, the, the legacy probably will not die. Maybe it will become lesser. Yeah, but I see a future in it. Maybe not now, maybe another 20 years down the road. Like I've got a lot of cousins who are excellent cooks. They do not get the same attention as me because they do not speak the language. They do not speak English or they are shy or they do not have like children who are like were able to bring that out in them. Some of my relatives from my community, like Karinalur or non Karinalur, they've started their own ventures and I'm I'm so happy yeah. that like they may not do like home cooking per se, but they do like delivery and they started off like their own Instagram page and it's really nice to see that the children are the ones who reached out to me and then they asked me like, oh, how can you do this with your mom? What is it like? What are the tools you use? And they, they're doing it with their mom or helping their mom set it up, which is great. And I, I, I always tell my mom that actually the best people who can cook this are not the ones doing it. Like the, the really good ones are like my, my, my father's sisters who, who don't speak English and, you know, they speak Tamil or, or maybe they are not as friendly on camera. So... The ideal would be, of course, that everybody who is good at it has somebody to teach to, right? I, I think with social media, it's really democratizing uh, this platform for everyone. Anyone can have a platform now. And I think that is different about the age that we're growing up in compared to, say, our parents' generation or our grandparents' yeah. generation. It's all about embracing that, right? Like, I was yeah. talking to a Singaporean, and he, he really believes that the true ambassadors of Singaporean culture are the aunties. You know, oh. yeah. Like I, I, think the media, the media is always has always focused on chefs. You know, yeah. I think it's so nice. 
when you actually get to talk to an auntie and learn from an auntie and have that auntie be really welcoming towards you, you know. I would love to like partner with all these aunties and help them, you know, share whatever it is that they know. But I know that language is a big problem. Singaporeans, they, they are bonded through English, but the older generation, they yeah. don't speak English. So it's difficult. I don't think I could have learned as much from them as I did from her because they probably said all the ingredients in Tamil, you know, mm. and so my mom learns from them and then she's teaching me. So in the same way, um, somebody is better learning that Hokkien uh, or, or whatever other languages could learn it before they pass it on to people who are younger. Mm. And in English, yeah, you need a little bit of an intermediary, yeah. You know, I read in an interview um, that you said that Spicy Kitchen actually helped to tear down a lot of misconceptions that people have. And one of the misconceptions that you talked about was women in a scarf. And I, 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 I've never heard of this conception. I didn't know that people had a certain stereotype of, of women who wear scarves. So what, what, what was your perspective when you said that? As in, I think the general sentiment of, of Muslim women not not specific to Singapore, right? I, I think in, in the world is that they you know they are not as liberal, quotation marks, right? Because the idea is that oh if you wear a scarf you must be very conservative or like you 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 are you know, they're just all these impressions. It's linked to Islamophobia and then also general perceptions of Islam outside of someone's home. When anyone meets my mom, they will know that she's them badass love. I mean she <laughs> I like she's not your okay. There are perceptions you may have about someone in a scarf. Like, for example, they are very pious or maybe they are very conservative or maybe they, they don't like to go adventure hiking, right? But then she's going to, like, tell that down because she's got to, like, Annapurna base camp, what the hell? For someone coming from the outside, as they hear my mom's story, they may not say this to me, but I'm always well aware that they are, they are somehow amazed that this person who is 56 years old dressed in a way that they are not used to, obviously, and uh, from, from a different like age group, is so different from what they imagine. And I, I find that really beautiful. Lah. For me, that is one of the, the highlights of my sessions, like Thank just you. letting her take the, the limelight in her adventure, which she's always, she's always saying, right? And it's, it's, it's really, really nice. I just went on my own on a trip without my husband and my children. And, to uh, Africa. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> When I went there, they were like, oh, was your husband okay? Are you separated? <laughs> so to them, it was like a woman in a scarf with the family behind just leaving everyone and going on their own. It's like, uh, are you okay? How does your husband allow? So yeah, that is breaking boundary. And uh, yeah, I, I was okay with it. I wanted to see the world and like, support. My husband was supportive. Yeah. He said, okay, I'm not going to do this uh, canoeing and everything. Please go ahead and do it on your own. But just come back safely. I guess for you, the perceptions come from your community. Yeah, it? It, yeah, just my community. It's it's not like, a, I, I think I've got Chinese friends who are doing this all the time. There's no big issue about it. But in my community, yeah, doing this is like, oh, why do you do this? <laughs> why? <laughs> why do you decline that mountain? Sometimes <laughs> in the middle of cooking, she'll be like, sorry, I need to pray. And then she, she will just go and pray and come back, you know, for an example. Or like, we have a clock in our house that has like the five, different prayer call timings and it will sound when we are in our session and um, I think it's about like familiarizing yourself to think that you, you were really just not knowledgeable about before 
So it helps that they are coming into a space to see how all this function within Singapore. And I, I love that. For me, that's one of my favorite things about the session. And I, I always say this when she doesn't like it, right? But we are very different. You know, I, I'm, I'm very modern quotation marks, right? And I, I have different lived experiences. And the fact that we sit together talking to our guests about very various issues is also a very eye-opening part of the session. Because the guests who come are usually young, mostly, and they have their own views, and they have to sit at the table with someone who has a different set of views, right, and discuss it gently and respectfully. So they do it, and it's it's so important that not just Singaporeans, but anyone does that, especially with the boomers, right, who they have so many comments about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I I think that's very important in this social media age. You know, I recently watched a documentary and they were talking about how it's like an echo chamber because your social media feed is curated based on what you like, and they only show you what you like. Um, and so I, I think it's really nice when you get to sit down at, at a table with people who think differently or live differently from you and being able to engage in proper discussions or just have a meal together, you know, with people who think differently. And yeah, I think it's such a good anti antidote for like cancel culture that's going rampant <laughs> right in society nowadays. I grew up in Red Hill. I don't know whether you know Red Hill. Bangkok Baru. Uh, Oak Hill Tower, the old place. It's yeah. literally filled with a lot of gangsters there. Actually, I, I grew up with <laughs> that area, a lot of gangsters. And the gangsters were with all kinds of tattoos everywhere. And they were quite rough looking. And they were very, very frightened. I was, I was super frightened of them. Very scared of people with lots of tattoos. But then we had a guest with lots of tattoos. And she looked normal. And she spoke just normal. She was actually very affable. Actually, that really made me think that oh, it's not so bad after all. And then there was this lady who had a different lifestyle, as in a different partner. Yeah, I'm not. I would not say I agree with that choice that she has made, but she was very respectful of the choice that she has made. And when she spoke to me about it, and I mean, I can I can't judge. But when I after she has left, I was like, why does she want to do this? And then she was like, okay, that's a choice. You know what I mean? I mean, being the mom I am, like, oh, why does she do that? Oh, it's not correct, right? She doesn't, or oh, that kind of thing. Or oh, there was one family who came who didn't want to have children at all. Oh, no, no children. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm going to take over. And I'm like, but I said, oh, I mean, I didn't say anything, but, but this kind of thing is an eye opening. So I, I really love that time when we sit down and we talk. It's, it's, it's a new experience for me to hear them speak like that. And they said, oh, I don't want children. There's enough in this world. But I'm thinking, but when you're gone, who's going to replace you? <laughs> who's going to replace you? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's how the world rejuvenates itself, right? Like, but anyway, I can't say anything. This is the choice they've made. And they're happy with the choice they've made. Like, I, I mean, yeah. My husband and I, when we were in uni, we did a pop-up. And it was like a pop-up for strangers. And we used to do it every month. Every time at the end of the session, I think people would send me messages saying that they are very surprised that they could talk with strangers. But I, I think this is really what the kampong spirit is. Conversations with, with, um, with your neighbours. So yesterday, I, I, ju I just came home from a walk and I saw my neighbour out um, sitting outside his house. And so like we started talking. It was the first time since COVID that we met. Oh, yeah. 
No, because we moved from Melbourne City to the countryside. And once we reached the countryside, it was locked down. So we didn't make any neighbours. We didn't make any friends for months. And so when I saw him, I was so happy. I gave him like cake. Uh, I, I think I, I wrote about it online um, because I was so happy that I made a neighbor, you know, finally made a neighbor. And this guy from Singapore, he actually sent me a message. He, he said, I want to be neighborly in Singapore. But every time I strike up a conversation with my neighbor, all she talks about is comparing her kids' grades with my kids' grades. I, I, can, I went for like a FWF Kotong Royong session because I, I think about this a lot. And there was an old lady there who was really teaching us how to instill Gotong Royong in HDBs and all that. And she said, there will always be that person who will talk to you about the grades or, you know, like ignore you or look down and everything. But she said that the, the point is to be consistent. She said, just keep saying hi. If they talk about something you don't like, just say, oh yeah, have you had the whatever laksa in here? Whatever, like, she said, you know, you have to make a consistent effort about it or drive it in the direction where you can be friendly. But maybe if you don't want to like too tight, then just leave it at a point where it's a bit open. Her advice really struck on me because it really struck me because we I think maybe we don't put in as much effort. And when we feel like someone talks about grades or something that's very off-putting, then we are like, oh, should I really talk to them again? Like just black mark them kind of thing, you know? But there's always another way around it. You could just I'm sure there's something less frustrating to talk about that could just fill up their silence in the lift when you go down. It's so different because when I grew up, I remember my mom had a very close relationship with our neighbours. Like, they would talk and like, everyone living in our block, we knew each other. Like, when they see me in the lift when I was growing up, like, five, six years old, they would say, oh, you're Amy's daughter, right? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they know my mom and things like that. But I feel that as I grew older, like, Singapore's, like, Singapore became less warm in that sense. Not the older estates, probably. Newer yeah. estates, yeah? The older estates where they're for older people are not so bad. Mm. But the newer estates where the parents are working and they're like rushing in the morning with the children coming back, there's a difference. My colleague likes, um, what do you call that? Huh? Bubble tea. Yeah. He likes uh, shopping for e-shopping for good stuff. So she has formed a subgroup. Yeah, and then they do this shopping thing. This is something that, yeah, buy and buy and their own passion. Or sometimes when they buy, they they buy for her. Or they introduce, and she also is a foodie. So she likes to hunt for, so yeah, so so they have got this group. So I think, yeah, maybe not as, uh, as close like what we used to have last time, like they come into the house or like talking and meeting outside, like, but this is like probably over the WhatsApp message, but mm. not personally. Yeah, that kind of togetherness. Someone needs to take the first step. So usually the, the people who moved into the apartment next to mine, they're, they're, they're new. And I've been seeing them for some time. Uh, you know, just smile at them and everything. But I haven't, I didn't say hi. But yesterday I ran out of baking paper. And then it was too late. And I was thinking, you know what, I'm not going to go down and buy. Screw that shit. Screw that. So <laughs> I knocked on their door. And I, I mean, I was implicating myself, right? Because... I had to ask them for baking paper and I was a bit embarrassed. But I thought, you know what? I could just ask them just a little bit, a square. And I would, if they give it to me or they don't, I would definitely already have broken a barrier. So I did. I knocked at the door and I said, hi, I'm the next door. <laughs> they have baking paper. I ran out. And I mean, they responded to me and they gave me some. So like someone needs to take that first step, even if it means asking for something as stupid as salt or whatever. Like it's kind of just like breaking down that barrier so that, after that, there will be this cycle of smiling or, or saying hi or, or some, something like that, I think. 
Yeah. And I think on this same line of um, community spirit, you know, and having that kind of kampong spirit, right? I think a bit a big part of that in Singapore is the wet markets. And I know that the wet markets form a huge part of your cooking. What exactly is the motivation for you guys to go to the wet markets to shop? I mean, Singapore, there's so many supermarkets all over the island and they operate like, you know, there are even some 24-7 outlets. Why go to the wet markets? Different kind of vegetables, number one. And you also can get your like lentils and everything. Uh, in, yeah, dried fruit in kilo instead of like pre-packed. Like they will just take it off that big sack and they'll give it to you. And uh, this is a bit of a cheaper business. <laughs> At the end of it, they'll give you coriander and curry leaves and mint leaves. Oh, we can take them, we can take them, we can take them. You feel, you feel so good buying like, oh, okay, she's given me so much. You don't mind like, shopping there again. Yeah, and also the price difference is so much. I mean, not all. NTUC sells a bit cheaper too, but some of the vegetables, like, you know, in, if you go to Eka, if you buy vegetables, they will give you the tomato. Normally, it's one, one kg is $2. But you buy a lot of vegetables, they give you one kilo, $1. I, I learned from her, yeah, first of all, you get all like the curry leaves and mint leaves and coriander in abundance from, especially little in there. Like, they are so nice. If you buy, they will definitely give it to you. It's not like you even ask. It's just common sense for them. But market have to buy one for $2 or something. It's ridiculous. Familiarity is... is something really nice. I, I, I value it a lot. Like if you ask my mom and me, there is a few shops in Little India, even like one shop that we go to, they know me and my father from when we were kids. So I, I, we always go back there because they really treat us so nicely and it, that, that familiarity can never be found in a, in a supermarket for sure. Yeah. So it's, it's if you value that as well, which I do, then going to a wet market has that kind of like, they know your order, they give you what you want beforehand, they put it aside for you, and they give you these mm, condiments for free, yeah, our best cuts. How you want it to be cut. Or if they, if they feel that there's the, the cut is not good, they tell you in advance, okay, this time the meat is uh, older meat. Uh, so yeah, you may have to keep longer, you know, or okay, they say that this is frozen or something like that. They let you know in advance, Instead of you finding it, or if you if they don't tell you, bring it back and you cook it and you find that it's bad, you go back and tell them. They say, "Oh, okay." Then they will just add up the next time and they give you they give you extra. Sorry, we've given you this. So that um, familiarity, yeah, yeah, and that you know that understanding that they know that we are not cheating them. It's like genuine report coming back to you and saying that the meat that you gave me was bad. So Tahira, both you and I came up with this um, initiative trying to encourage young Singaporeans to go back to the wet markets to shop. You want to tell our listeners about, about this? Basically, getting young Singaporeans, Singaporeans in general, to visit their neighbourhood or nearby wet market, take photos of the produce or tell us what they find interesting or useful in that wet market for other people to share. It's basically an initiative where we want to pass the pasar. So we pass on the baton of me going to Little India, for an example, to somebody else and hopefully they pass it on and it becomes a way in which we can encourage people to visit the wet market as much as they can. You know, Makan Sutra was like the guide for hawker food, right? But we mm. don't have an equivalent for wet markets. So, so I guess this initiative is more like a crowdsourced movement or initiative where everyone can contribute. 
Anyway, thanks so much for talking with me today. I had so much fun talking to both of you, and I think both of you are such inspirations. You know, for working together. I don't see a lot of like mother-daughter duos working together to to kind of preserve their heritage and their culture. So kudos to both of you. Thank you for having us. You inspire me, really. That wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. To stay updated, you can check out our website at sgpnoodles.com or follow us on sgpnoodles on Instagram. As Tahira mentioned in the podcast, Spicy Kitchen and Singapore Noodles will be starting a new initiative that encourages people to visit and share about their local wet markets. So do keep your eyes peeled for that in the new year. Also, if you're looking for last-minute Christmas gifts or you just want something for yourself to start the year with, then check out our planner for the new year. Every purchase of the planner goes to making Singapore Noodles a more sustainable platform and enables the time and resources that go into the documentation of recipes and stories. As always, thank you for the support and love that you've given me and Singapore Noodles and I hope that this platform has inspired you to keep Singaporean heritage alive in your own way. And because Christmas is around the corner, here's me wishing you and your loved ones a very Merry Christmas.